0: well welcome back to the service of grace podcast my name is dave and i'm the host for this show and today we continue our study through the book of psalms looking today at psalm 21 and jesus's joy would you pray with me now father we thank you that your word is true and that not only is it true, but that it is living, as Hebrews 4.12 says, it is active in our lives. And that through the word of God, what you are aiming, one of the things that you are aiming by your spirit to produce in your people, is joy. The joy of the Lord, as Nehemiah says, is our strength. Because behind, behind your word is you are a God, as Titus 1-2 says, that never lies. As Peter says, the scriptures are for our life and for our godliness. In the scriptures, Lord, we, we get to know the God who is and who was and who always will be. We get to know the, the Alpha and Omega, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the, the Lord of Righteousness. So, Lord, as we look at Psalm 21 today, and as we come to your word, may you use it to show us where we lack joy. To to show us, Lord, where we where we need to grow. Show us, Lord, where we where we not only lack joy, but the source of our joy and how it is found only in Christ, only as revealed. In the Word of God. We thank you, Lord, for this time that you have given to us to open your Word. And we pray, Lord, that you would use the preaching of your Word to help us to grow to be more like our Savior and our King Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to our chapter from Psalms this week. Psalm 21. And hear what the Lord has to say through this text. O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices, and in your salvation, how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great your salvation splendor majesty you bestow on him for you make him most blessed forever you make him glad with the joy of your presence for the king trusts in the lord and through the steadfast love of the most high he shall not be moved your hand will find out all your enemies your right hand will find out those who hate you you will make them as a blazing oven when you appear The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your brows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is the reading of God's precious, precious word. The nation of Israel faces destruction from every side. Hezbollah threatens their strongholds in southern Lebanon. To the northwest, Syria resents Israel's seizure of the Golan Heights. To the east, the Jordan has a peace treaty with Israel, but the West Bank simmers with hostility. Militants in Gaza They continue to fire rockets into Israel. Hamas is to the south. Further, for the south, the ongoing unrest in Egypt. The continued unrest in in general in the Middle East allows militants to gain power in Sinai. Now, these dangers are not new. We've seen them come. We've seen them go. In fact, what we see today is a repetition of what David and the other kings of Israel have faced for centuries. Israel is situated at the hub of three continents, Asia, Europe and Africa, and sits on a major trade route between Egypt and Mesopotamia. The kings of Israel faced pressure on every side. Warfare was as we read the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel and we've studied those and we read 1st and 2nd Kings and even 1st and 2nd Chronicles. We see this very clearly. History of war is the general historical context behind Psalm 21. The people of Israel lived in a dangerous world, and they praised God, and they served the king. Because as the king goes, so goes the people. The king trusted God, and God endowed him with power from on high that comes from him. And through his salvation, the whole nation was saved. You may have noticed as we read Psalm 21, that it echoes the last words of Psalm 20 which says, "O oh Lord, save the king." These two psalms are paired together. They match like two candlesticks. In Psalm 20, the people ask God to save the king. In Psalm 21, the people praise God because He saved the king. God rescued. God did rescue David many times. But Psalm 21? takes us forward to none other than our King, Jesus Christ. King David is writing about another king here in this text. And many Jews near the time of Christ understood that Psalm 21 points forward to the Messiah. In fact, the word king in verse 1 is translated as King Messiah and two ancient Jewish sources, the Targum and the Talmud, around 108. Around 1100 AD, a prominent rabbi named Rashi suggested that this translation be dropped, saying this, Our old doctors interpreted this psalm of King Messiah, but in order to meet the schematics that is the Christians, it is better to understand it of David himself. During the Reformation, none other than that great reformer himself, John Calvin said, but above all, it was the design of the Holy Spirit here to direct the minds of the faithful to Christ Christ, who was the end and the perfection of this kingdom, and to teach them that they could not be saved except under the head which God himself hath appointed over them. We should hear Jesus our King speaking in Psalm 21. Christ rejoices in the way God saved him. Psalm 21 begins and ends with praise for God's saving power. Look with me at Psalm 21, 1-2, through which says, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. In verse 13, we read this, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. These brackets set the tone for the psalm, a celebration of God's strength and the strength of the king. The trajectory of this psalm moves from Christ's joy to our joy. When God saved Christ, he saved us. You see, our lives are bound up in the sufficiency of God. His victory is our victory. The king's joy is our joy. And the rest of Psalm 21 fills out this message. God's strength blesses the king in verses 3 through 7, and God's strength fights for the king in verses 8 through 12. First, let's consider God's strength blesses the king in verse 3, which introduces the blessings God poured out on us in Christ. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. The word for crown, God sets his head. It's not a king's royal crown. This crown or this wreath is a gift to, honoring, to honor visiting dignitaries or guests at a banquet. They are made out of leaves, out of flowers or precious metal. This is not a royal crown, although he certainly does rule. The point here is that God publicly honored the king and showed his love for him. This rich gift, then, is a sign of the honor bestowed by the king, by God, an open sign of a divine approval for all to see. We need to ask the question, how did God honor him? And the answer is that David lists three ways that God blessed the Messiah with his mighty power. First, with life. God blessed the king with eternal life. Psalm 21, verse 4 says, He Asked life of you and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. And the first half of this verse refers to David. He was a warrior king, his life was a danger many times as he went into battle. And the second half of the verse can only refer to Christ, the Messiah who would come. Length of days in verse 4 by itself already means a long life. And by adding the phrase forever and over, David takes this beyond the life of a human king. God had promised David that his great son, the Messiah Jesus, will be an eternal king. In 2 Samuel 7:13 and 16, David is told by God, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and again, your throne shall be established forever. David referred to this promise as he wrote Psalm 21. The scriptures say in Romans 6, 9, that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. You see, through the resurrection, God has given length of days forever and ever to Jesus Christ. He will always be king. He will always reign. He will always rule over all the universe for all eternity, and his kingdom will never, ever end. Secondly, we see in our text that God gave the Lord exalted glory. Psalm 21, verse 5 says, His glory is great through your salvation, splendor, majesty you bestow on Him. The word glory means to be heavy and by extension to be important. Glory is that asset which makes people or individuals and even objects impressive. God has made Christ impressive, important, weighty, glorious. You cannot avoid Him. All of history revolves around Him because all of history is about Him. All of history finds its apex, goal, and culmination in the person and the work of Christ and in His soon coming. Verse 5 tells us how God gave Jesus great glory. He says, His glory is great through your salvation. You see, the the way that God made Jesus great was by saving Him. For God to save him, Jesus had to suffer. And then God gave Jesus a magnitude of glory that he could not have had unless God had saved him. Because of the cross and the resurrection, Jesus is more famous, more impressive, more important, more glorious than if he lived his life in peace, as if he never said anything at all. He is more glorious than if his disciples had rescued him. He is more glorious than if he had been a successful general leading his disciples to battle. And it's no accident that Psalm 22, which we'll look at next week, with its description of Jesus' agony, comes right after this one in the Psalter, the Psalms. God made Christ great by allowing him to suffer at the hands of evil men. As in our sinless substitute, even unto death, and rescued in his glory as great through your salvation as the psalmist says. And why we need to ask, we, we need to understand the answer to this. Why is Jesus more glorious? Because of the cross and resurrection. You see, through the cross, God displayed Jesus' perfect obedience. A true son obeys his father, and Jesus obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross. Through his resurrection, he was declared to be the son of God with power. Jesus is more glorious because he is now the firstborn from the dead, a second Adam, the founder of a new race of human beings. This glory would not have been possible if God did not let Jesus suffer and die and then saved him with his power when he rose from the dead. God works the same way today in our own lives, in our own story. God gives glory to those who belong to Christ by saving them through his power, not through our own strength, our own merit, our own ability. God is still saving people by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, so the glory of God alone. God allows suffering in our lives so that his power can be clearly displayed in and through our lives. God brings us to a dead end so that the answer will be obviously be from him and not from our own planning, not from our own devices. God will even in his providence allow hard things into our lives to make it clear that we must follow him because we truly love him, we truly adore him, we truly treasure him, not because he has brought our obedience with his blessings because we supposedly deserve it and yet he still honors us by saving us in times of trouble thirdly god blessed his king with his presence psalm 21 verse 6 says for you make him most blessed forever you make him glad with the joy of your presence god's presence does not seem like a great blessing to those who do not love the lord who do not know the lord It's like receiving a fruitcake at Christmas. Can I call to re-gift this later? Maybe even after I ate it? No. They love the things God gives, but not God himself. They want God to provide them, to forgive them, to protect them, to give them Things to heal them, to give them a million other, billion other blessings, but they do not want a sufficient God revealed in the Bible. They do not want a God who comes near, a God who desires to know them and who knows them and will hold them to account. They don't want that God. And so they do not want to be in the presence of God. They wouldn't be happy in heaven because being with God is the joy of heaven. And that is the hope that we have as Christians. We will be like the Lord. We will be in the presence of God, our King, our Savior, forever. We will worship Him. We will adore Him. We will treasure Him. But God's people love Him, they are thankful for the good things he gives, but their hearts are set on God himself. Would you be happy if you went to heaven but it, and it was cooler than you could have ever imagined? You saw a city that took your breath away. You met scientists like Isaac Newton, artists like Michelangelo. You saw your grandparents. You walked on streets of gold. You kicked huge nuggets like gravel. There's only one catch, though. God wasn't there. You had everything that you could imagine, but You didn't have God. Would you still be happy? Here's the thing. God himself is the greatest blessing for which we can hope. Without him, the best things we can ever imagine are really nothing. To use Solomon's language, they are vanity, and they are grasping for the wind in Ecclesiastes 3. But to be in his presence, the psalmist says, In Psalm 21, verse 6, is the most blessed forever. Life, joy, delight, satisfaction. As a man, Jesus loved his father. He longed to return to his presence. The universe was created through him. He could have added anything that he wanted. And yet his great joy was to be in his father's presence. And if we belong to the Lord, if we are in Christ, this will be our delight as well. And when God commanded the priest to bless the people of Israel, he told them to bless Israel with his presence. The greatest blessing. Numbers 6, 22 through 27 says, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. David says later in the Psalms, in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You see, if we love God and we long to see him, we have a strong weapon in the fight against our sin. And when we're tempted to sin, Satan is baiting us with his hook with something that we want. It's no use pretending we don't want to sin. You do. You fight against your real desires. That's why sin is so tempting. So how do we how do we fight against something that we want, something that we desire? How do we go beyond modifying behavior to dealing with the root issue of sin in our hearts. We fight this wrong desire by fighting it with a superior pleasure and a superior delight in Christ as revealed in the word of God. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If we love God and we get excited about the thought of being in his presence, we can quote this verse in Say to ourselves, I want to see God. I want to I want to see God more than I want this bike I could steal, more than I want this relationship with a married man, more than I want to watch porn on my iPod or I, I whatever. Phone, smartphone, more than I want another drink, more than I want anybody to look at me, more than I want pleasure, more than more than more than more than and on and on. The apostle John says this to all of this in First John three, two through Three, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see, one of our goals in worship in our local churches is to see Jesus more clearly so that he is more beautiful and he is more desirable to us because he is alone. He alone is sufficient. If we have a small, puny, dinky Jesus, we will not want him more than we want the temptations that are pulling at us moment after moment, day after day, year after year, decade after decade. And when we come together, we need to have our eyes open to see the the beauty, the majesty, the glory of our king as revealed in the word of God. Wrong desires are real, and we won't defeat them with a small thumbnail view of Jesus. We need a 50-megapixel view of Jesus revealed in the Word of God so that that picture can fill up our whole vision. We need to see the glory of Christ. And as Owen said, all the other painted glories of this world fade away in the light of the glory of Christ. You know, we can learn techniques to manage sin. We can look where where not to look, where not to go. That's vital. But until we fight our sinful desires with a greater desire, a greater pleasure found in God as revealed in the Word of God, we're not going to win the battle against our sin in our hearts. Christ was blessed with the joy of the presence of God. This joy is set before us too, and it is a powerful, it is an underdeveloped weapon that God uses in the hands, in his hands, through the means of grace, by his spirit, because we belong to him. Robert Murray McShane, he only lived to the age of 30, but he told pastors he was used powerfully by God. He said the, one of the number one things that my people, the people that God gave to him to minister to, the, the number one thing that he told pastors that they needed was holiness. They needed to see Christ put on display at work in, his, in their lives. And this follows, this follows what Paul told the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I, as I follow Christ as revealed in the word of God. Follow me. Follow my teaching. Don't just follow my doctrine. Follow my life. That's why our doctrine fuels our discipleship. Not our discipleship fuels our doctrine. That's, that's the problem in our day today. We are living in a day when everybody wants application. They want to be told this and this and that. They want to be told Hey, here's five things to a better life. Here's how to be a better person. In fact, even just this week, I was told by somebody in Africa, the Christian life is about how to be a better person. No! The Christian life is about how to have a superior joy because of a sufficient Savior who really bled and who really died in our place and for our sin and rose again to so that we could have new life in him, both now and forever. And so we have a sufficient Christ to meet our every need. In verse seven, David gives the reason these three great blessings were given to the king, the Messiah. He says this, for the king trusts in the Lord and through the steadfast love of the most high, he shall not be moved. This verse describes a mutual faithfulness. On the one hand, verse 7 says, The king trusts in the Lord. God answered Christ because of his faith. He placed his life in God's hands. He trusted in the strength of God. He believed that God would save him. And in return, verse 7, steadfast love is God's loyalty to his covenant. This is his said. This is unchanging, unbending, unrelenting love that he has. Christ trusted God and he was not moved because God is trustworthy. Let's stop here for a second. Titus 1:2 says that God will never lie. That is, behind the character of God is Himself. He is in and of Himself, just by virtue of God, virtue of creating the world, upholding it by the word of His power. He is trustworthy. He is good. His mercy endures forever. He is holy in all of his ways. And yet we also need to say he's unchanging in all of his ways. The ways of God never change. the ways of man always change. The, the mind of man always changes. Think about somebody that you know who changes their mind all the time. God is not God is not like that. He is not a fickle father. He is a steady king. His plans, his purpose in eternity past, will come to fruition in eternity present and in eternity future. He is trustworthy. He is orchestrating all of history, all of our histories, all for His glory, all for His praise. My friend, if that doesn't make you just stop for even just a second and check your pulse, if that doesn't for one second just get you a little bit fired up and a little bit excited, you need to check yourself. And I'm not kidding. This should this should make your jaw drop that that you have a God who so controls history. And so controls your history. Nothing, nothing at all is outside the purview of His of His work, of His hand. Nothing. That just makes me want to stop this recording right now and turn on the worship music and just sing to the the Lord. Is that the response? Is that the posture of your heart? Do you so find joy in the fact that God is trustworthy, that He is good, that you just have to stop and thank Him that even, even in the midst of the hard things of your life, You can give thanks to God. Up to this point, David has described the blessings God gives in Christ. Now the psalm focuses on the way God fights on the behalf of Christ. God establishes his kingdom by crushing his enemies. We see this in Psalm 2, which we looked at when God terrifies the king's enemies. And the violence of these verses, it might catch us by surprise. We're not used to thinking about God's wrath as one of the ways he blesses Christ and his people. But this is part of God's full salvation. Not only did he crown Jesus with honor, he took up his cause by destroying his enemies. No one can be safe and secure when... they have strong enemies. South Korea has emerged over the last 50-plus years with a vibrant economy and a strong political role in the Pacific Rim and beyond. And in spite of all these advances, South Korea will never be safe as long as North Korea has the fourth-largest army in the world and they have a growing desire. Even as I record this just weeks before, they, they send missiles over Japan. And yet we also can say this. That God makes the kingdom of Christ safe by destroying his enemies. His great power protects the king and protects his people. The gospel means both salvation to the people of God and judgment on his enemies. Martin Luther saw this as he taught on the Lord's Prayer. When he said this, when we pray your kingdom come, your will be done, Luther says, we must... Put all the opposition to this in one pile and say, Curses, maledictions, and disgrace upon every other name and every other kingdom. May they be ruined and torn apart, and may all their schemes and wisdom and plans run aground. If we pray for the kingdom of God to grow in this world, by definition we are praying for the kingdom of Satan to be destroyed. We cannot love Christ and at the same time wish his enemies well. Victory for the church means utter defeat for Satan and the kingdom of darkness. By the way, that's exactly what Revelation tells us will happen. The kingdom of this world will destroy. They, they will be obliterated. They will come to an end as judgment upon judgment upon judgment upon the, the ideology, upon the philosophy, upon the religion of this age, headed by none other than the prince of the power of the air, as Paul would say, Satan himself. All will be brought down, and all will bow, as Paul says in Philippians 2, to the glory of Christ. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, all to the honor and praise of God. You know what? Ours is a day when the state of theology recently reported that, that even among evangelicals, they don't believe in the deity of Christ. First John makes it very clear: You can't even be a Christian if you do not believe in the deity of Christ. The book of John answers this question very clearly: Christ is fully God and fully man. You, you see him perform miracles after miracles. You see him teaching as one people recognize with authority. And you see how the religious leaders respond to the teaching of Christ in the Gospels. See What Satan doesn't want is he doesn't like the truth. He wants to distort the truth. Because once he can do that, he can get you to believe a lie. Oh, well, here's here's just enough of the truth. It'll go halfway, maybe. But the rest of it is just a flat-out lie. Sugarcoat it. Here's, here's a piece of candy. But the candy is laced with poison. Except this poison will not only lead to your death, it'll lead you to hell. Friends, we are living in a day when, the, when truth is under assault. In fact, the very definition of truth is under assault. The very, and, and since the, the very definition of truth is under assault, the very way in which we can know things and have certainty about them is under assault. The very way in which we can know and be educated is under assault. And to put it another way, so that you understand this very clearly, if truth is under assault, the very fabric of society is under assault. Which means to say, everything is under assault. Everything is up for grabs. That's why we must stand on the truth of God's word for the honor of Christ. Uh, David mentions here three stages to God's development, discovery, destruction, and defeat. First discovery, God searches out and discovers the enemies of Christ. Psalm 21, verse 8, Your hand will find out your enemies, your right hand will find out those who hate you. And the word find appears twice in one verse. You see, if you are against Jesus Christ, you cannot stay hidden from God. God is everywhere, all at once and all at the same time. You cannot hide from this God who made you, who fashioned you. As Psalm 139 says, in your mother's womb, you cannot hide from him. He knows you. He made you. He upholds this world by the word of his power. There is nowhere that you can hide from God. And the word find appears twice in this one verse. If you are against Jesus Christ, you cannot stay hidden from God. God takes the way we treat his Messiah, Jesus, very personally. These enemies are not just Christ's enemies. David is speaking to God, and he says they are your enemies in verse 8. God so completely identifies with this Christ that those who are against him are his enemies. Friend, I've got to be real with you right now. Don't fool yourself. If you, if you are against Jesus Christ, you are against God. Some people like to think of themselves as spiritual. It's, it's so cool. It's so hip. I go down to the yoga mat and I have my spiritual experience like, like you're having some sort of latte. Our world believes that God exists, but they don't want to follow Christ. If you don't want to obey Jesus Christ, you do not want to obey God. If you have a problem with serving Jesus, you have a problem with God. God searches out and he will find those who are against him. You cannot fool God. There is no hiding from God. And there is no mistaken identity. He knows who you are. He made you. He upholds you. Your days are in his hand and they are numbered. He knows the length of your days. He knows the hairs on your head. And yet Christ came. Christ came to suffer under the sentence of Death even for the people that would reject him and despise him. In fact, think about this. You read the Gospels. The very people that spit in Jesus' face, the the very people who put the crown on his head, who whipped him and flogged him, Those were the people that Jesus paid and died for. And by the way, crucifixion is the most gruesome form of death ever devised by mankind. It makes, you know, injecting somebody with a lethal poison and they die look like child's play. That's what our Savior did for us. He died for his enemies. He died for people that spat in his face, not over the Internet. They spat in his face. They whipped him. They beat him. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. They told him, you son of a carpenter, which was, by the way, an insult him and to his parents and to where he came from because they so so hated him people do the same today they say jesus is just one of many options and yet jesus himself if we take him at his words as we would anybody else you you go to the court of law and you want to be taken seriously in that moment you want to be taken seriously for your words and for your testimony Without that, we have no court of law. And if we take God seriously at that same level, as I just said, John 14, 6 says, Jesus' words, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. That means that salvation is restricted and it is exclusive. It is found only in the person and only in the work of Christ. In the book of Acts, the apostles preached this message. And again, Jesus told them in John 16, 33, you will have trouble in this world. They had trouble because they preached this message that Jesus preached, that Jesus bled and Jesus died and Jesus rose. Religious leaders hated it. After all, they they are the ones that put Jesus to death. And he died for them, too. The second stage of God's judgment is destruction. In verse 9 of Psalm 21, it says, You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up, in his wrath and fire will consume them. That's a dreadful judgment. It was meant to be a sober warning to God's people as they sing this song. In fact, everyone who reads these words should examine their hearts not for morbid inspection, to be sure they're, they're not numbered among the enemies of God. If you are a Christian, these words should teach you the fear of God, to have a healthy respect for His holiness, for His honor, for the power of His anger. This is not just an Old Testament idea. This is the message of the whole Bible. Hebrews twelve twenty eight and 29 says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship, With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Not only does God destroy his enemies, he destroys their descendants. Psalm 21.10 says, You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. The idea here is that the offspring are like the parents. The children are just as guilty as the fathers, because they too rebel against God. God does not indiscriminately sweep away the innocent with the guilty. Unless the grace of God steps in, as it has in the person and work of Christ, they will be just like their parents. God is at work destroying the enemies of Christ in our lifetime. You may not remember how God answered millions of prayers in 1989 to overthrow Nicolae Sissicrio, the dictator of Romania who persecuted the church. Another persecutor of the church who challenged God was Samora Macau, the first dictator of Marxist Mozambique. Thousands of churches in Mozambique were closed, confiscated, nationalized, claimed, and padlocked, burnt down, or even boarded up. Missionaries were expelled. Evangelism was forbidden. Bibles were ceremonially burned, and tens of thousands of Christians, including many pastors, many elders, were shipped off to concentration camps, and they were not seen again. On October nineteenth, 1986, while several churches were specifically praying to God to stop persecution in Mozambique, Mikhail's Soviet Tupolev aircraft crushed, crashed in a violent thunderstorm. The third stage of God's judgment is that his enemy's plans will be completely defeated. Psalm 21, 11 through 12 says, Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. No matter how they plan, God's enemies, they will fail. God's great power will defend his king and they will utterly defeat him. And this literally happened with Samor Makel as he died. The plane crashed 200 meters within South Africa's boundary with Mozambique amidst the wreckage The Marxist plans for overthrowing the government of Malawi were discovered and published. Not only had God judged a blasphemer and a persecutor, he also saved a country from persecution. So David ends where he began, celebrating God's great strength. Psalm 21, 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. see, God's great power saved and exalted Christ. His power gives joy for his people and he judges his enemies that should make your heart sing that's the only proper response to this great god he is sufficient in and of himself he is worthy of all of our praise of all of our adoration of all the honor of all the glory so let's pray Lord, to be honest, as I wrap up this message, words words fail to adequately articulate just yourself, just your power, just your glory, your sufficiency. But we thank you that you are sufficient in and of yourself. And that is because you are sufficient, you are a trustworthy God. You are a God that that we can lean into, we can trust in the midst of the trials, in the midst of grief, in the midst of our disappointment. Because you are the one who is orchestrating all of a history, uh, of history past, of history future, of history present. You are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so you alone are worthy of our praise and you are the only one That can give real joy. You are the only one who can help us to fight our temptation, to fight our to fight our weariness, to fight our troubles. You are the only one who can help us. And you in every way, as Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, when we are tempted, you long to help us. Because you are you are sinless. And so we just come before our high priest now. Thankful for the death of Christ. Thankful for a sufficient Christ. We ask, Lord, for the help of your spirit. We repent of the many, many ways in which we find ourselves to be sufficient. And we are reminded, even in this message, of your sufficiency because it's your power that raised us from the dead because it raised Christ from the dead so we need the help of your grace we need the help of your spirit without it we are dead in our trespasses and sins but thank God you you rose from the dead on the third day you are a you are a triumphant and victorious savior king so Lord, help us to to live lives of humble gratitude and thankfulness to You, and to live always before Your face as we are. And may we all, the response of and the posture of our hearts be one of gratitude, and humility, and holiness, as we await that day when we will stand in Your very presence and forever worship our king in jesus name amen thank you for listening to the servants of grace podcast today if you enjoyed the show please subscribe